This NCA podcast episode is sponsored by Sadlier. Sadlier's new foundational skills program, From Phonics to Reading, by Wiley Blevins, has received the all-green result from EdReports, an independent educator-led curriculum reviewer of K-12 instructional materials. Please request your free sample at www.sadlierschool.com backslash FPR. Today's podcast is with author and researcher Wiley Blevins. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your professional career, maybe how you became interested in the teaching of reading? Yeah, well, I can start with how I became interested. I'm, and a lot of people who have heard me speak know this story, but I'm originally from a very rural community in the mountains of West Virginia, and I come from what I call legacy of illiteracy. My grandparents on my father's side never learned to read or write. And on my mom's side, my grandmother only went to school to fifth grade because after that you had to go into town and she didn't think she had fancy enough clothes. So I didn't grow up in a home with books. And I saw all the obstacles that my grandparents faced because they couldn't read or couldn't read well. And I also saw the shame that one of my grandmothers felt because of that and how she tried to hide it. So at a very young age, I loved school. So at a very young age, I always wanted to grow up to learn how to teach someone to read so I could teach my grandma. And that was really my motivation. My entire childhood was to go back and teach grandma how to read. So I did. I went to college and became a teacher. I taught both in the United States and South America at an international school. And as I began teaching, I realized I hadn't been taught how to teach children to read, (laughs) even though I went through the College of Education and it terrified me. And so I went to grad school and I was lucky enough to go to Harvard and study with some of the greatest minds in the country at the time and really learn how children learn to read. And as, as you know, uh, <clears throat> it's, a, it's not a, a something you learn once and then you're, you're done. We're constantly learning and the research is developing and, and that's what makes it exciting actually. As I work with teachers, we're constantly fine tuning what we're doing and so on. So after I got my graduate degree, I began working Uh, in a combination of places, schools, as well as working with publishers to create materials. So I've done that for a very, very long time. So now I consult and author programs like like the the program you're familiar with, the Sadlier from Phonics to Reading program. And I work directly with school districts to help train their teachers on foundational skills and early reading. I uh, work with the reading coaches here in New York City on foundational skills because they're out in the schools trying to uh, increase the capacity of the teachers they work with. But I also I also continue my work with, with publishers reviewing materials and help them construct materials based on the latest research and so on. One of the things I am doing now that's a bit different is I'm also the associate publisher of a children's trade book imprint. It's called Raycraft Books, and we published books by authors and illustrators from underrepresented communities because so many children don't see themselves in the books that they they have in their classrooms and school libraries and so on. So we are trying to change that and also really elevate the incredible talent in our country that um, sometimes hasn't hasn't had the opportunity to, to share their stories. That's a great story, but I need to know, did you go back and teach your grandma how to read? <laughs> 
Un well, everybody asked that. It's, it's actually a very sad ending. By the time I got through college, my grandmother had early stages of Alzheimer's. Oh. She was unable, unable to learn to read. So, but she, she, her, watching her throughout my childhood has enabled me to impact thousands of kids' lives because of it. So I didn't get to teach her, but I've got to, I've had the opportunity to teach a lot of other people. And, and she knows. I think yeah. it's more important that she knew you loved her than anything. So you know, it's so funny. Uh, she wasn't, I wasn't even particularly close to this grandmother because she had three boys. And when her, my father was the oldest, and when they started having children, she's like, if I have any grandsons, I don't want this. I want a granddaughter. And so my <laughs> sister was born right before me. It was the first granddaughter. She adored her, spent all her time with her. When I was born, she's like, oh, another boy. Go to your grandpa. <laughs> so I wasn't even that close. Life impacted me in a really profound way. Yeah, she did have a, a profound impact on you. So um, you talked about books, um, your book series, so that um, children who might not see themselves in traditional literature um, will, will be able to find themselves. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that is just critically important. And you know what? I also think it's really important that that white children know that there are other children in the world, too, that have Absolutely. their own story. Yeah, so every year there's a count taken of the books published here in the United States. And when you look at all the books that feature animals and trucks and trains as main characters, there are more of those than all the books put together for children who are African-American, Asian, Native American, uh, Hispanic, and so on. It's really sort of a sad state of affairs. Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop out of Ohio State said that books need to be they need to be mirrors so that all children see themselves reflected so they understand their stories matter. They need to be uh, windows so that children can see uh, others, people who are different from themselves. So that, like you said, they uh, develop an understanding and an empathy for them and also sliding glass doors. Books can be safe passageways into worlds of fantasy or worlds of information where you can, you can swim beside a shark in a book. You know, you don't have the dangers of doing that in real life. So books serve all different kinds of functions. And so a mirror book for one child can be a wonderful window book for another child in that classroom. So yes, all of these uh, white children need to see children who are not white in books so that they, they understand more about people who are like them in a lot of ways and perhaps a little bit different in some ways. So what do you say to people who are looking for a more classical approach to education and, and perhaps uh, um, want to make sure the children are reading classics, which are mostly about white people? Yeah, yeah I, I, I think that's okay for us to continue working with the classes unless there's something particularly problematic about the classes, but pair them with a modern piece that shows a wider variety of, of characters, main characters from different cultures and different aspects of our US society. So it's great if you wanna read a story that we grew up reading, but also read beside it uh, a, a story from a, a writer of color from today, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I have five grandchildren and um, they get a book for every holiday and sometimes just in between. Um, oh, but it's, it's, it's be, and it's very important for me. I make sure that I'm buying books that are written by people of, of different color, of different backgrounds, because I, I want them to 
know how wonderful the world is. And I, I really didn't think about it enough when I was a reading teacher myself. Um, I think I had some books about with children of color and that, but probably not nearly enough because again, it wasn't the focus. I'm that old that it really wasn't the focus. So um, this new, new generation of teachers in their teacher preparation program, do you think we're doing a good enough job so that they're aware that they have to, as you say, have the, have the books be a mirror, a window or a sliding door? No, but we are, there's a, a, an enormous push to make them more aware of that. And so the offerings from like educational publishers who are selling books into schools, those offerings are becoming more diverse. And what's even better is that the school districts are really demanding better quality books and, and more diversity. And diversity isn't just children from different races, it's children from different regions and different mm-hmm. socioeconomic backgrounds and things like that. So it's, there are a lot of children's experiences that aren't reflected in books yet or aren't reflected often. That's very true. Cause I grew up on a farm in Illinois and yes. the books I was reading what was about new England. I didn't know it at yes. the time, but they were mostly, and it's like, we don't have blueberry patches and babbling yes. creeks. And I mean, seriously, I was like, nothing was written about the flat plains of Illinois. It just wasn't. And yes. You probably had that same issue in West Virginia. You cannot find a book about hillbillies for children. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, this is part of the sad thing. I mean, I, I've been writing children's book books, and I've had the great fortune of publishing about ninety of my own stories. That's and it fantastic. Was, it was it was my 90th book. Was the first book that had characters from my community in West Virginia. It took me that long, that many years to get a publisher to publish a book about what my people, wow. my community. That, and I'm in the industry. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's very telling. Yeah. Wow. And I'm going to tell another story on myself. So when I was in first grade, we read a book. I don't know the name of the book, but the teacher read a book about kids going in an elevator. And the only elevator I knew was a grain elevator. Oh, yes. And they were obviously talking about an elevator in a building, but I had never been to one like that. And I wasn't deprived as a child. It was the late 50s, early 60s. And trust me, I wasn't deprived. But again, my experiences didn't prepare me for that word used in that way. Right. And I would see lots of books with uh, children from the city. I remember very distinctly as a child, there was a, a photograph of a, a, a skyscraper in a big apartment building. And at the top, they had like trees and kids were playing. And I was terrified for these kids. You know, what if the, you know, the soccer ball goes over the wall? Mm-hmm. I just was so baffled by this. Right. I, I, our experiences or lack of them really do matter. It's, it's just the way it is. So, so how do you think we can best support teachers who are teaching reading, which I think is 99% of all teachers? How can we support teachers in the teaching of reading, no matter what, what subject matter they're doing? Well, the, the first thing we have to help them understand is that we know when they leave their college of education, they don't know everything they need to know. And that it's going to be a lifelong learning process to develop professionally. And so I remember when I left the College of Education, I sort of felt this pressure, like I needed to know everything. And I was afraid to ask the questions I really should have been asking and so on. We need to create environments where 
our younger teachers understand that and have the freedom to to ask those questions and, and principals who partner them with mentor teachers within the school to address specific issues that they have, whether it's classroom management or specifics about teaching and reading. And then we have to we have to approach the the preparation for them in terms of teaching and reading well through a long-term lens. It's not just a workshop you can do on a Saturday. It needs to be sort of a consistent, slow introduction of material application, time to debrief about their observations and how things work and to fine tune it throughout either the course of a year or multiple years. And they need to understand that that is their goal because ultimately, uh, you know, our job is to teach children to read. And that gives them access to all the content areas. And we all have to be teachers of reading. And so one of the big issues, teachers who are upper elementary, middle school, high school feel very uncomfortable with that part of their, their role, but they know that they have students who can't read well. And so we have to do better by them to give them the tools they need to help those children. Uh, yeah, I think that when teachers say, you know, I teach math, not reading, I think they say it because they, they don't know how to do it. It's not that they really don't want to or that they're offended yeah. that you would ask them, but they don't know how because, again, preparation is lacking in that area, probably. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And I, I'm, I was an elementary school teacher. That's what was my college degree. And I got the first job and I'm teaching first grade and I had not taught first grade in any of my, you know, pre-service work. And I remember finding I'm teaching first grade and literally thinking, I don't know how to teach them to read and almost saying, no, I can't take the job. Um, it's a terrifying feeling. It is. It is. And again, I feel like I was prepared as well as anybody was in that era, but it, it, it wasn't enough and it, and it's still not enough because you're right. What we know now about how the brain functions during reading, we didn't know any of that when I was learning to read or not learning to teach people how to read. Yeah. And that's part of what excites me about what, what I do is I'm still learning every mm -hmm. year. So it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To keep learning. Sure is. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So um, I, I so I think you're right. The ongoing professional development, the learning, I, I think that's really important. Um, do you have advice for a teacher who's like in a classroom and like, OK, Wiley and Kathy, you're talking. That's great. But I have this kid who doesn't read and I'm teaching eighth grade civics. What am I supposed to do right now? Do you have advice yeah. for that teacher? Well, hopefully that teacher has. Uh, resources in the district. You know, there are reading coordinators and reading coaches and speech pathologists are an amazing resource that we underutilize in our schools because they have so much background in uh, some of the things that those of us who went through the ed schools weren't trained in. So there are those resources. And then there are uh, resources available through the internet. Like there are universities who release a lot of great information for teachers. Like uh, I think it's the Florida Center for Reading from see the Florida University of Florida State. They they have provided a ton of resources for teachers to use during the pandemic. I mean there are resources out there to help because we have so much access through the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Florida State used to be one of my go tos. They they have a great site. I, I could not agree with you more. So your your program with Sadler is about the use of phonics. Mm -hmm. So um, tell us a little bit about the role you see phonics playing in the teaching of reading. 
Well, you know, we're having this national conversation. Yes. People call it the science of reading. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of arguments about whether it should be called that and so on. I, I don't get involved in those conversations. For me, it's just sort of highlighting the fact that we have this big body of knowledge about how children learn to read. It comes from us, teachers and educational researchers, but there are other disciplines like cognitive scientists who do brain research and so on, who are also studying reading and finding out some really interesting things that can impact our teaching. And now we're starting to pay more attention to that. And it's showing that some of the things that we thought we were doing well really aren't and for very important reasons. And so it's it's really, it's a time where we're reevaluating what we're doing because when it comes to phonics, you have a very short period of time to teach those foundational skills yes. and to teach them well. And so you have to do it in a way that really accelerates the learning, that gets them the mastery fast, they can transfer those skills and so on. So that short window is really important that we, that we do it right, we do it well, we do it efficiently. So you know, that's one of the things to, to be aware of. But the thing that, the thing I like about the conversation around the science of reading is they're bringing back all these sort of old models of reading, like the simple view of reading or Scarborough's reading rope. You keep hearing about these things, but basically what they say is that in order for us to understand what we read and become skilled readers, there are two sort of buckets that we have to focus on. And one of those buckets is the decoding piece which is where you have phonics and phonemic awareness and learning those high frequency words. And then there's the bucket of language comprehension. So that's our, our vocabulary, our content and background knowledge. And I've always said that we need to focus on both of those buckets equally from the beginning. And what happens is a lot of schools will focus on one bucket or the other. You know, there are schools that will do tons and tons of phonics and very little of the vocabulary background content knowledge. So they might get kids who can sound out words, but then they hit a wall because they don't have this other piece of what they need to understand their reading. So I like that the current conversation is getting teachers and school districts to be aware of the importance of both. And phonics has its proper place, but also that we are going beyond just sort of the basics. A lot of people feel like if we just have a phonics program and you know, we're doing some blending and we're reading some books and what have you, it's, you have to go further. We have to go below the surface to look at what are the high impact routines? How do we modify or fine tune what we're doing with our students to maximize learning? And that's where my work has really um, centered, at least in the past decade, looking at like 10 reasons why phonics instruction sometimes fails after you have everything in place. And that's a big eye opener for a lot of school districts. Well, we have, we have the materials and we have the assessments. We're not getting the results. Well, I look at what they're doing and I see all of these different obstacles that are in their materials or the way they're delivering materials. And we start unplugging those things and then we can accelerate student learning. So there, you have to go so deeply to do it right and to do it well. And I'm hoping that the current conversation will get teachers and school districts to go below the surface and dig into these, these aspects that really move the needle. I, I, I so agree with you. I just really feel strongly that it's not an either or, it's a both and. And some children will do really well with the phonics, some will not. Some will do really well with language, some will not. And they both need our, our assistance. That's our job as teachers. Yeah, I think the more that we can teach children how the English language works, the better equipped they will be to not only read and write words, but also to see new words and understand the meaning. So 
we create a curiosity about words from the beginning. We talk about how the system works. Children are always looking for word parts to help them figure out meaning and to sound it out and so on. It's just a completely different environment about our language. But going back to the teacher prep, part of that requires that teachers also understand more deeply how the yes. English language works. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, on my wall in my office, I have um, two teaching licenses, one from 1908 and one from 1898. And they are my um, grandmother and my aunt's teaching license. And um, they the fascinating thing to me is that they had to take a test every year and their scores were on it. And then their license was posted in their one room schoolhouse. So their students knew their scores. Wow. Um, But one of the, yeah, I mean, that's accountability, is it? (laughs) But um, one of the the subject areas is orthography, which is really the the sound symbol relationships in the language. It's both. And I sometimes wonder, maybe we need to bring back that word and that study. Yes. Well, it is interesting that we're starting to talk about orthographic mapping. Mm-hmm. And in order to 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 learn words, commit them to memory, and access them quickly, so we're starting to get that word back into the the, the language of teachers. But hopefully, that will increase. You know, I've been asked to look at creating resources that are just sort of linguistics one hundred and one for teachers. You know, like a starter starter set of information to help them just begin mm-hmm. that exploration. Yes. I And when you said that about speech and language pathology, one of my favorite conferences to go to was by linguist systems. And it was yeah. for speech pathologists. But as a teacher, I loved it. I learned so much. It was, I, it was fantastic. I don't know if linguist systems still exist, but they were a great company back in the day. So... <laughs> Um, so let's let's change and um, hear a little bit more about you, Wiley. So what's your favorite book to read to children? <laughs> it's such a hard question because, you know, I, I write books and mm-hmm. I publish, you know, I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. And I think my answer to that would be, what do I buy the children of my friends? And yes. I go back to the classics, the the things that I read as a kid. Like I go back to uh, Go Doll Go and Are You My Mother <laughs> from Eastman. And I go back to, you know, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, which was the first sort of fantasy chapter book I read that got me excited about longer books. Uh, so and there are tons of new books that are just, that are telling such powerful stories. Um, so it's very hard for me to, I have a favorite, new favorite almost every week and I'll post on Twitter, you know, this week's favorite. (laughs) Well, I will start looking for that on Twitter then, because, um, like you said, my grandchildren receive a lot of books from me. And, um, so that will be part of it. And I'm, I'm just going to give a plug right now, write your own book for your grandchildren. I, I, I write books. They get them whenever they get them. I try to make Christmas, but let's be honest, sometimes Christmas comes in Easter. But um, but books about them and their families with our pictures and, and, you know, I think, I hope that when they're old, they will appreciate that grandma wrote them a book. So well, um, that, it's interesting that you say that because I think one of the best things you can do is to record those family stories. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a children's book coming out in, I think it's June. It's called Sunday with Safta. And Safta is the Hebrew word for grandmother. And I lived in Israel for a while. And there's a very famous Israeli artist who created this series of paintings about Jewish holidays. 
And when I lived in Israel, I didn't know about the holidays. So I would ask people all the time, like, what are you celebrating? They'd be like, well, I'm not really sure. It's uh, there's this, we make cookies like the shape of this mean guy's ears and they're, they're yummy. Like nobody really could tell the story. So I learned all about these Jewish holidays, which, you know, go back centuries. And so I paired with him to create a book, which is a grandmother coming from Israel to New York City to visit her grandson. And she takes him to this museum that has these paintings by this famous author, who the illustrator, who's the illustrator of the book. And she starts telling family stories about different things that happen on these holidays. So you learn a little bit about the holidays, but you learn these deep family stories, some sad, some funny, some poignant, so on. And it, he realizes that, you know, his grandmother promised him this gift and he didn't feel like he ever got a gift. And then a year later, when he goes to Israel to, you think, visit her, but she has passed away, he realizes that these stories were the greatest gift she could have given him. That's so, nice. Family stories are what really matter. And the more we can record them and pass them down, I think I think they're things that these kids will cherish forever. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> so, they will. They will. I, I, I think so, too. I, I really do. And I think it's important to do it. And, and you're right. The, the books, the ones that I'm going to write in my head when I retire, they are all our family stories. I want them to know. Yeah. So I think it's important. I, I do, too. So what's your favorite book for yourself? <laughs> you know, I saw this question on the, the list of questions and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I guess I would I would give sort of a, a more typical answer. I grew up in a very religious family. Mm-hmm. My father was a, a Southern Baptist preacher. He had a gospel show on the radio. Um, and so, you know, in happy times and sad times and times of need, the Bible is my go-to. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read it many times and there are places I go for whatever I need. So it's kind of the one touchstone book that's been throughout my entire life. And it was the only book we had in our house growing up. It sat on the coffee table. It was giant. Um, you know, so that would be that would be my go to book. Yeah, it's funny in my home and being Catholics, we weren't necessarily encouraged to read the Bible. We weren't discouraged, but I wouldn't say we were encouraged. But the Bible was the biggest book in the house. Yeah. Yeah. And it was fancy. Ours was it had like puffy cover and it had gold trim and it yes. sparkled in it that's, just was spectacular. Yeah, that's exactly the way our, ours was too. I mean, it, yeah, and it was, and the the paper was like tissue thin. You had to be very careful with it. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. It's funny. I tell, yeah, it was. It was really thin. I, I tell people that when my we didn't learn to read until first grade when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and Mrs. Warshaw, my first grade teacher, taught us to read. She taught it like it was a system. You know, there are these letters, they stood for sounds, and you could figure them out. And, and so I tried to learn ahead because that was the kind of kid I was because mm-hmm. I was so curious about the system. And one of the first phonics skills I taught myself on my own was TH because when I went to church, it was always the thou doeth, you know, mm-hmm. these strange words that jumped out at me. And so I paid attention to them because they were so weird. And I figured out TH. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Um, and I, I, the first time I ever saw the word cherubim and seraphim was in a song at church and I didn't yeah. know what they meant. And yeah. so yeah. definitely was learning vocabulary at, at church. And again, it's common experience, although different churches, common experience. So, so um, my last question is for parents and we do have some parents who listen to our podcast. And if yeah. you are the parent of a child who's struggling to read, what, what advice, encouragement would you give to that parent? 
it, it's a very challenging position to be in because I get a lot of emails and letters from from parents. Find other parents who are in a similar situation who have gone through what you you've gone through. Know that it's not about the the speed with which your child learns to read. It's the fact that they do learn to read, and some children the path is longer than others. Um, find those those best resources that you can use to help them. I mean, certainly we know reading aloud. If you have a child who struggles to read, part of the issue is that they're not going to do much reading because it's not a pleasurable experience. But these children need a lot of vocabulary and content knowledge to be successful in school. So reading to them, having books on audio, uh, taking them to museums. If you don't have access to these kinds of experiences, there are a lot of virtual field trips that they can go on to really expose them to content and vocabulary that they wouldn't get in everyday speech, uh, but would get through these more oral kinds of experiences and just and be there for them through the frustrations, encouraging and so on. There are a lot of, especially like, uh, I know in a lot of states, there are parents who have children who have dyslexia who have banded together and created resources for other parents and support groups and things like that to really guide them because they're not trained teachers. They're not really sure what the best things um, to do, but there are tremendous resources out there now, more so than ever before. I agree. And and again, talk to I think your advice to talk to other parents is great. And I also think, you know, don't forget the classroom teacher. Talk to them because, yeah. you know, yeah. you don't know who's going to give you the advice that you need to to best support your child. But um, again, there your child is not alone. And I, I, I used to hate, you know, they have to read this much by third grade or the research shows. And it's just like, no, please quit saying that because a kid who's eight and isn't reading, they're going to feel like they can they'll never learn. And that Sorry. is not true. It is not true at all. So, yeah, yeah. I, that used to just drive me crazy about 10 years ago that because that was all that mattered that, you know, how much can they read by third grade and, you know, yeah. all that. And it's just like that is not true. Let's quit talking in that terms because that does not help any child. So, um, yes. So, Wiley, I really appreciate you taking the time for being with us. I appreciate Sadlier for sponsoring this podcast. And um, I hope that we'll continue um, to learn together and read together and that um, you'll continue to work with Catholic schools across the country. I would love to. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You are you are more than welcome. So thank you and everyone who's been listening to our NCA podcast. We appreciate you listening and we hope that you have a wonderful day.